0: This podcast includes adult language and themes. It also contains descriptions about sexual violence. Please be advised. Previously on She Says. How do you act and stuff? He's just surprised. Really? Like, I remember them coming to talk to me, but I, like I don't remember anything about this, and I was like, okay. What? Well, I have I have a search warrant. So just. Wow. You know,
1: you know. Oh my gosh. Okay. Good.
0: It was better than him fighting. Right, right. You know. Well, here we go. Time slows down when you're waiting for good news. It's the same thing when you've been in the car too long trying to get home. Everyone and everything is annoyingly slow. All you want to do is get to where you need to be. Do you think she's owed an apology at all? We ended last episode with Linda getting news that Detective Christina Kogel obtained a cheek swab from the man Linda identified as her attacker. Now she has to sit and wait for lab results.
2: Well, I think we apologize for how things have panned out and it's so regrettable. And, you know, I mean, we we empathize with her so much of what she's gone through. But unfortunately, it's not something we can correct. It's not something that we caused. It's just situational.
0: And listeners, we are building to something, but I think to fully understand and appreciate what we're driving toward, we have to look at a road that runs parallel to the winding road Linda is on. It's not the same, but it has many similar twists and turns. I hate to make you wait, but this parallel path is important. And in order to do it justice, I have to reintroduce you to someone.
3: My name is Harold Medlock, H-A-R-O-L-D, Medlock, M-E-D-L-O-C-K.
0: You may remember Harold Medlock from Episode 2 when we discussed the victim-centric policing philosophy. He was with the Charlotte-Mecklenburg Police Department for more than two decades. The reason he left the department was for a career
3: move. I wanted to see if I could accomplish things as a chief of police, but I knew that if I was going to be a chief in my lifetime, I would have to, uh, I would have to seek uh, employment elsewhere.
0: So in 2013, he packed up his bags and moved three hours east to Fayetteville, North Carolina, The city of over 200,000 is right next to the Army base, Fort Bragg. He retired from Fayetteville on January 1, 2017. He's now in his early 60s and lives in Charlotte. If there's one thing you should remember about Medlock, it's that he's all about relationships.
3: You know, I'm from the South. I am that person that, you know, is Mr. Uh, Congeniality. I like to talk with folks. I'm going to try to build that relationship with you before we get down to business.
0: All relationships are important, he says. The relationship a detective has with a victim. The relationship the police department has with the community. The relationship a police officer has with a neighboring city. I think the best way to let you in on what type of person Medlock is, is a story he shared with us. It takes place during his tenure in Fayetteville. It was 2015, and he responded to the scene of a murder. The victim's sister was also at the scene, and she was, understandably, very emotional.
3: That murder happened to have happened on my birthday. So, you know, that morning, we get the call, and, and I'm out there, and, and, uh, and so the detectives work it.
0: A year went by, and the case, as Medlock would say, is still a whodunit. So the next year on his birthday, May 1st, he decided to make a phone call to the victim's sister.
3: She said, why, why are you calling me? I said, because this happened on my birthday. And I said, for the rest of my life, this will have happened on my birthday. And I said, you and I are connected forever. And, and she was not the easiest person to deal with. But when we made that connection, the relationship with the detectives started to change. Did I have to do that? Was a re, was that a requirement? No. But it was something in me. Again, this is me, Harold Metlock. I may be completely outside the lines. If I am, I am. You, you can't experience those things and not have them affect you personally. But also then be willing to make that connection with that victim or that victim's family.
0: It was a good thing Medlock had that perspective. A surprising discovery would require the police to focus their energy on creating and repairing the connections they had with victims in a way no one saw coming. From WFAE in Charlotte, I'm Sarah D'Elia. This is She Says. Medlock didn't know it, but he was inheriting a problem within the Fayetteville Police Department when he took the job as chief of police in 2013. He couldn't have known because no one found it until Lieutenant John Dyke brought it to his attention. Dyke has spent his entire 26-year career with the Fayetteville Police Department. He's now the head of the Special Victims Unit, which handles sexual assault cases. In early 2015, Summer and Dyke was reviewing sexual assault cases to see if there were enough to form a cold case unit. He sees one case with a CODIS hit that had never been acted on.
4: I'm immediately excited. I know that, hey, this is one we can jump on now and probably make an arrest now. But when I go to look for the evidence for the case, I find the evidence had been disposed of at some point um, in in the past. So, you know, I was reviewing other cases that were also, I felt were workable, unsolved cases. and, And was seeing this trend where, hey, you know, the evidence, you know, most notably the sexual assault kits had been disposed of.
0: So Sommer and Dyke tells Chief Medlock about what he was finding. And Medlock orders an audit. It takes about two months. And the department finds they destroyed 333 kits from 1995 to 2008. They didn't do anything illegal. Other departments were also destroying kits to free up space in the property and evidence rooms. Sommer and Dyke says it was a bad practice. For sure, there's never a good time to discover that the police department you work for destroyed hundreds of sexual assault kits. But Summer and Dyke says the timing was especially bad for the Fayetteville PD in mid-2015. The department had just been awarded a grant that would help speed up the testing of backlog sexual assault kits. Then, a week later, the news broke about the destroyed sexual assault kits.
4: Kind of like a punch in the gut. <laughs> it kind of took the wind out of my sails a little bit. Um, but, you know, we, we all knew it was the right thing to do. And we all knew if, if we didn't do it, it was, it was going to come out eventually anyway.
0: So the Fayetteville Police Department didn't hide from the story. Quite the opposite. First, Chief Medlock held a press conference to let the public know what they found.
3: I'm distraught. I'm frustrated. I'm angry that, that truly one person may not get justice uh, as a result of, of our practices.
0: Then the agency, with the help of the local rape crisis center, attempted to call every victim whose kit was destroyed and do something police rarely do, apologize. Salmer and Dyke made some of those apology phone calls. He says they weren't easy calls to make. People had reactions all across the board. But this one, he remembers well.
4: After I notified her and then apologized to her, she immediately said, you know, my faith in the Fayetteville Police Department is restored. You know, that's that's a huge thing to say for a lady who's, you know, we didn't do that good a job back, you know, 10, 15 years ago. And now she's probably harbored that resentment for years and all of a sudden it's released just because of a simple apology from a, you know, from a cop.
0: The choice to apologize was one Medlock calls a professional decision based on personal beliefs. It was important to apologize to both the victims and the community, he said, even though the destruction of this evidence happened before he accepted the job in Fayetteville.
3: I believe when I took the job in Fayetteville that I became accountable for everything that had occurred prior to my arrival there. It would be very unfair for me to, to simply say, uh, not my time. Uh, we found this mistake. Let's move on. The other thing that drove my decision to apologize was my belief that there was, when those horrific crimes occurred, a lot of pain, a lot of anguish, not just for the victim, but uh, for their families. And for me to come out and acknowledge that we had found this terrible mistake, and not apologize for the for the mistake to the victims, I think would have been a slap in their face again.
0: Medlock said it made the relationships between the police and those victims stronger. He said apologizing gave the department some of its credibility back. Yes, people were mad initially, very mad. But he believes the community saw that the police were trying to do the right thing and that he was empathizing with the victims.
3: But at the end of the day, if that had been one of my family members who had been sexually assaulted or raped, I would have expected someone to apologize for that mistake.
0: But to be clear, this was not the easy path for Medlock to take. What was the backlash like for you personally?
3: There were uh, some of my peers who were not very um, accepting of uh, of my decision. Uh, there were some within uh, my city government that weren't accepting of the position and the public acknowledgement. There's always the fear from the lawyers that you're going to be sued for something, and my theory has always been we're going to be sued anyway. So, so let let's just get it out in the open uh, and let let the legal system uh, run its course. I can't be worried. As, a, as the head of an agency for trying to do the right thing and then worry about being sued. Within the profession, I, I received some criticism because folks thought that they would now be, other agencies would now be scrutinized. I had some police chiefs and some sheriffs reach out to me and say, you know, I've opened a can of worms and, and you should, I should have just uh, acknowledged to those victims individually the mistake. We in our business in law enforcement, I think everyone tries to be professional, tries to do the right thing, uh, but we make mistakes. And I think when we make a mistake, we need to acknowledge it and we need to move on.
0: Medlock says neither he nor Fayetteville got sued. Police say it took two years to try and contact all the victims. In total, they were able to contact 79 percent of the victims. Remember, some of these cases were more than 10 years old. Some people had moved out of the area and couldn't be found. Others had passed away.
3: Believe it or not, cops still have hearts. Uh, they, didn't, they didn't take them away when we put the badge on. But, but I think sometimes it's hard for us to admit a mistake because then we're afraid that folks will, our communities will have um, less confidence or le- less trust in us.
0: At the same time the police were apologizing for the mistake, They were also participating in a two-year-long review with the Police Executive Research Forum, a research and public policy organization. The review specifically looked at how the Fayetteville Police Department and three others across the country investigated and handled sexual assault cases. The study resulted in some changes at the FPD. The department modified its sexual assault procedures in 2016 to specify that detectives needed to have a victim-centered approach when investigating these cases. Things like non-judgmental, open-ended interview questions, reminding officers that a victim's memory can be impacted by the traumatic event. Also, to not discount a victim's credibility if some details about the incident change. And it directs officers to always take a reported crime seriously, no matter how much time has passed since the incident. The Charlotte-Mecklenburg Police Department doesn't have this level of detail spelled out for how it investigates or treats adult victims of sexual assault. CMPD's policy spells out some principles for how all victims of crime should be treated with compassion, fairness, dignity, and respect. In the early 2000s, detectives working sexual assault cases created a guide for investigations. They direct detectives to not put their opinion in a victim's statement. The rest of the guide is mostly focused on how and what kind of evidence the police should collect and how to make sure victims are safe and where to refer them to. Medlock's road wasn't easy, but it was an empathetic path, and it led to needed change. In Linda's case, CMPD clearly empathizes with Linda's situation, but is there empathy in regards to how she feels like she was treated by the police? It's time to rejoin her after this quick break. I'm Sarah D'Elia. This is She Says. Hey, She Says listeners. This is usually the spot where we tell you about this week's listener call-out question. But this episode, we're doing something a little different. We still want to hear from you, but this time we want to know what you're curious about. What questions do you have about Linda's case? What do you want to know about making this podcast? In an upcoming episode, we're going to answer your questions. You can write us at she says at wfae.org or leave us a voicemail at 704-448-6511. You don't have to leave your name, but if you do leave us a voicemail, please know your voice may be part of something featured on our website, on another episode, or possibly the radio. Your deadline is end of day, Monday, July 2nd, 2018. For more information, visit wfae.org slash says. Support for She Says comes from WFAE members and Contemplative Rebellion, a peace and justice jewelry shop offering handmade, socially conscious jewelry, supporting various charitable organizations such as Women for Women International. On the web at contemplativerebellion.com. If you're looking for another investigative podcast, check out Offshore from our friends at Honolulu Civil Beat. They just launched The Blood Calls, an eight-episode serialized season about adoption, human trafficking, and Pacific Island culture that you don't want to miss. It's the story of an adoption boom that rocked the Marshall Islands in the 1990s and takes a deep dive into current reports on human trafficking and unethical adoptions in the U.S. today. And it follows the journey of London Lewis, a young man adopted from the Marshall Islands in 1992, as he searches for his birth family and his culture. How do you find your identity? And how do you hold on to your culture when your homeland is in danger of disappearing? Listen to Offshore on Apple Podcasts, Radio Public, and at offshorepodcast.org. I told you earlier that the road Harold Medlock was on ran parallel to Linda's. Remember, she was assaulted in June 2015 which was just a few months before Medlock gave that press conference in Fayetteville, letting the public know about the 333 destroyed sexual assault kits. As Medlock was looking into ways to transform the Fayetteville Police Department, Linda was just starting to learn how to navigate her relationship with the CMPD. From our first step together, I know you've had a question in your head that's probably grown by now. Is the man Linda identified Mr. X? If it's not him, then who assaulted her? To Linda, whether it's him or not is, well, everything. This investigation has become her life. It's what she thinks about and worries over day in and day out. Which brings us to March 2018. It's been 988 days since her assault, or two years, eight months, and 13 days. I know this because Linda is counting. And all of that time has added up to a voicemail from Detective Christina Kogel.
1: But I wanted to let you know that the DNA came back and I signed
0: warrants this morning and I'm putting a request in to have somebody go and pick him up. The DNA profile found in Linda's kit matches the DNA swab Detective Kogel took from the man Linda identified from an Internet search she did almost two and a half years ago. The detective got that swab when the suspect was in court on unrelated charges. I spoke to Linda after she got the call about the match.
1: How are you feeling right now? It's kind of surreal. I I, I don't I I like I, I'm I, I I I don't I don't quite know yet. Like I'm really excited, and I'm happy to 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 hear that. I mean I just I don't know I don't know yet. I I just can't. I mean I'm yeah. I'm probably not the best person in to interview right yeah, now. Um... But I'm speechless. I really am. And here we go. Uh, I've I've just
0: got to let it sink in a little bit. I guess. It's easy to get swept up in this news. Police say there is now DNA evidence linking the man Linda says is her attacker to the actual assault. But to be clear, this doesn't conclusively prove that he sexually assaulted her. That's for a jury to decide. A few days later, he's arrested. He's charged with three counts of first-degree forcible sexual offense and one count of assault by strangulation. A sexual assault becomes first degree when the crime involves a weapon and it can mean a harsher penalty if there is a conviction. I spoke to Linda the day of his arrest. It feels good, but it's bittersweet because the whole circumstance is
1: really sad. I think I feel better uh, now from a a mental and emotional perspective. I feel better now than than I have in a really long time because there were so many what-ifs in my mind.
0: The same morning the man Linda identified as her attacker was arrested, we had an in-person interview with Captain Melanie Peacock to talk about Linda's case. This interview had been in the works for a while, but the cosmic irony of our sit-down taking place the same day the suspect was arrested was not lost on me. After we were buzzed in, we walked down the long hallway to the press room. It's a room usually packed with reporters and cameras and can be a little cramped. But that day, it felt empty. There were only four people in the room. She says reporter Alex Olgan, CMPD public affairs director Rob Tafano, Captain Melanie Peacock, and me. You've heard bits and pieces of this conversation throughout this season. But now, it's time to share more. I started by asking Peacock about the Google search Linda did. First, I wanted to make sure the lab never gave the suspect's name to CMPD. Peacock confirmed that that was true. Linda provided the name to CMPD through her internet search. If she had not done the Google research and provided that name,
2: I mean, would we be here today? Would he be arrested today? Probably not. It's hard to say. I mean, she her providing that information was, was critical, but unfortunately it does not give us probable cause to charge him just based on that.
0: Which is what Kogel told Linda several times. Peacock goes on to say they had to wait for the DNA evidence to come back so they could build a case... And that doesn't happen overnight because of the backlog. And as we know by now, even when the DNA comes back, there's still an issue. And Kogel has to rely on the Internet search. It
2: feels like the victim kind of cracked the case in this in this instant. Yes. And like I said, this is the situation is so unfortunate. I have never seen this happen before in my time in in investigations. Half of my career is in investigations and I've never seen this situation Mm -hmm. happen before. It's so regrettable and it's so unfortunate, but it's not anything that the detectives did wrong. It's just the circumstances, the way they worked out.
0: When detectives Kogel and Banner tell Linda in the June 23rd, 2017 conversation, it's not him. They didn't do anything wrong. They're going off the facts, Peacock says. And she doesn't find anything wrong with how the detectives spoke to Linda. The way in which the detectives speak to the victim, do you find any problems or do you wish they would have spoken to her and a different way in any of the tapes that you reviewed?
2: Not at all, I think our detectives have an obligation to be matter of fact and to explain the circumstances and also to give the victim, um, in any case, a good idea of what's to expect because there's a whole big difference between identifying a suspect, Mm -hmm. then making an arrest, and then getting a successful prosecution. Those are all different hurdles that have their own barriers. Mm -hmm. So they're simply trying to lay out the whole picture To let her know what to expect, and I think we have an obligation to do that with victims.
0: There's a piece of Detective Kogel's conversation with Linda from November 2017 that has always stood out to me. It's from that interview we played last week, although we haven't shared this piece of audio with you yet. At one point, Kogel starts to walk Linda through what the process would be like if an arrest was ever made in her case. If I were able to arrest
1: him, and I would put the file together, everything
0: that
2: I have, and send it, the Mm -hmm. DA and I would would meet and go over everything, and then they would be your point of contact until trial.
0: Kogel tells Linda, if the DNA matches, it will be very hard for him to deny that he was involved. So he's already said he doesn't know
1: who you are. He already
0: so if he doesn't know who you are, then
1: how did his DNA get? Exactly inside your kit. so right there. So right. to me, he would have to take a plea. I
2: mean, that would be our ultimate. That yeah. would be well. I would if you go to trial, you're taking a, a huge chance of it being found not guilty. So that okay, yeah. All so right, gotcha. You'd rather him plead? I would. Okay. It opens up so much stuff to you. That's true. That's what people don't understand. You yeah. yeah. but it's totally up to you. It's you and your to you and the DA's decision, not mine. Yeah.
0: What Kogel said here is that she would want a plea deal. If Linda went to trial, it would, quote, open so much stuff to you. That's what people don't understand. I wanted to know what Captain Peacock's reaction was to that portion of the audio. Was she concerned that that kind of language could dissuade Linda from certain legal options? Captain Peacock said what the detective was doing was letting Linda know that there was a hard road ahead and to make her aware of it.
2: What we do is lay out the picture of what's ahead and let the victim decide what they want to do. I think we have an obligation to tell them what they're in for. If we don't, then they're going to be caught off guard when something goes to trial and it's not how they expected it to be. Other
0: law enforcement officials we've spoken to have pointed out that it's important that the victim understands what could happen if an arrest is made and the potential legal options, but that there's a difference between explaining how the process works and talking in the first person about what you would do. One of the people we spoke to was George Irwin Jr. He's the director of the North Carolina Association of Chiefs of Police. Irwin was a sheriff in Henderson County in western North Carolina from 1994 to 2006. To be clear, Irwin is not commenting on Linda's case. He says detectives should stay focused only on investigating the crime. He also says when a detective tells a victim how difficult a trial could be or that a plea deal would be ideal, it could discourage that victim from following through on charges.
3: In uh, my personal opinion, it definitely could. The officer is to investigate the crime. It's up to victim services individuals, counselors, and the district attorney to address the other issues. It's not up to that officer to make a determination whether somebody ought to take a plea deal, uh, accept a plea, or this is what they're going to put you through those things the victim is prepped for court by the district's attorney and victim service professionals not the not the officer
0: one of the last questions i got to ask during our 26-minute interview with captain peacock was this do you think
2: she's owed an apology at all well i think we apologize for how things have panned out and it's so regrettable and you know i mean we we empathize with her so much of what she's gone through but unfortunately it's not something we can correct. It's not something that we caused. It's just situational. Um, and the best thing I think we can do at this point is just help her move forward, either through you know uh, resources and advocacy and keeping her apprised of what's to come, just as the detective tried to do throughout the whole case. We try to let our victims know exactly what to expect, exactly what's to come, so they're not hit with any surprises. Mm-hmm. And we'll continue to do that throughout the process.
0: I recently asked Linda the same question. Do you feel like you are owed an apology by the police or anyone in particular? Well,
1: I mean, I'm glad you asked that question. Um, I I do feel like I'm owed an apology.
0: What do you think, like, if you did get a, a phone call from her, like, what do you think that would do for you? Like, how would that help?
1: I worked with Kogel a lot, and that that would mean a whole lot to me. It, it would it would just mean a lot to me, um, and I can't say that I haven't been thinking about her since all of this came out because it makes me sad. I, I guess I, I had more, I, you know, I had a relationship with her more than than anybody there. So yeah, it would mean a lot to hear that from her but I don't I don't anticipate talking to her.
0: The words from police are very carefully chosen. They apologize for Linda's situation and say it's regrettable. The situation they apologize for is this bizarre sequence of events that led to the arrest of the man Linda believes attacked her in 2015. According to Linda, the situation she would like an apology for is the way she was treated and spoken to by police. There are two words that would have been easy for Harold Medlock to avoid saying when it was brought to his attention that 333 rape kits were destroyed before he even took the job as chief of police in Fayetteville. He could have described it as a regrettable situation and left it there. But he chose to say two words to victims and the public, even though the damage was done from 1995 to 2008, when he was three hours away, serving with the Charlotte-Mecklenburg Police Department. I'm sorry. Two words that say a lot. The man Linda identified through her internet search in 2015 came back as a DNA match in 2018. He was arrested and charged with three counts of first-degree forcible sexual offense and one count of assault by strangulation. After his arrest, he was incarcerated at the Mecklenburg County Jail. And it's important to note that when someone is arrested for any crime, they have the right to know who has accused them of the crime. Sexual assault crimes are no different. Like I said before, this investigation has become Linda's life. So when the man she believes is her attacker has a bond hearing, she goes. She sits in the very back of the courtroom with her husband, I was there.
2: Your Honor, the defendant's for a bond hearing is charged with first-degree rape and assault by strangulation. I did pass up the warrant affidavit, which has most of the facts. I think I just want to add two things. I'm not sure if this information was included.
0: In and I saw the defendant and, and Linda lock eyes. She later told me it was important to her that she not be the first one to look away. For a little over two weeks, Linda feels, for the most part, a sense of ease, like she can catch her breath. And then she gets a call.
2: This message is from the Mecklenburg County Vine Service. Please listen carefully. You may want to have a pen and paper handy. You are registered with us to receive updates about an offender whose last name is...
0: The last name and the first name of the man Linda identified as her attacker are said here. Linda had signed up for this Vine service when he was arrested. It stands for Victim Information Notification Every Day. It's a free service anyone can sign up for so that they can be notified as soon as possible when an inmate's status changes. This was the message to let her know that he was able to post bail and was no longer incarcerated.
2: I'm calling to tell you that there has been a change in this offender's status. If you have any concerns about your immediate safety, contact your local law enforcement agency, or if you have an emergency, call 911. For custody status questions, contact the jail Since her
0: assault in 2015, Linda has had many fears. Fear that her case wasn't being taken seriously. The fear that nothing was being done in the investigation. The fear that no one would be brought to justice. But now, she has a new fear. The man she believes is the person who assaulted her is out. And now, he knows who she is. I'm Sarah D'Elia. Next time on She Says, we want to hear from you. What questions do you have about Linda's case? What do you want to know about making this podcast? In an upcoming episode, we're going to answer your questions, but we need to hear from you first. You can write us at shesays at WFAE.org, or you can leave us a voicemail at 704-448-6511. That's 704-448-6511. She Says is written, produced, and reported by me, Sarah D'Elia. Our editor is Greg Collard. Joni Deutsch is our producer. Alex Olgin is our reporter, and she co-wrote this episode. Music is provided by Pachyderm Music Lab. Keep the conversation going on Twitter using the hashtag WFAE She Says. You can tweet at me directly at Sarah WFAE, and that's Sarah with an H. If you want next week's episode in your feed as soon as it comes out, make sure to subscribe to She Says on NPR One, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you find your podcasts. You can find out more information about the podcast at wfae.org slash she says. Thanks for listening.
4: I'm a survivor, and I was assaulted in Charlotte, North Carolina, as well, just like your first episode. It was actually my boyfriend and myself that had been drugged and raped. Um, right after we got drugged at work, and the bouncers actually put us in the car with the person that drugged us, and he drove us to his place and raped the two of us. We didn't file police reports because my boyfriend wasn't out at the time, and um, I didn't want to out him to his family in that way my boyfriend also wanted to deal with it ourselves we never did get the chance though